Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Lush. In your truck, in the sticks somewhere, wherever you are. <laughs> I saw the uh, photo you posted. It seems like you truly are in the sticks somewhere. Good morning, Brady419. I don't recognize that that name. Maybe I missed it before, Brady. Thank, welcome. Thank you for, for coming and attending. The Lawn Sauce. That does sound familiar, but I'm not 100% sure if I've seen that um, that name before in the chat, but welcome. Sorry if I've missed it. Hawaii. From Hawaii, guy on vacation in Tokyo. You're in Tokyo now, Lawn Sauce? That's interesting. My cousin lives in Hawaii, and uh, it's a beautiful place. I think it might be a little bit... Uh, I don't know, closed in. I might feel a little bit closed in if I lived there for more than a year or so, but beautiful location. Aldo's here. I believe Aldo's in California, if I remember. Welcome. B Butcher. I don't recognize that name either. I'm, when I'm Whenever I'm doing the, the show, it's hard for me to keep track of the chat and so forth at the same time, so I apologize if I don't remember um, your, your handles or whatever. Um... So, uh, yeah, Lush, I might, might be the last. That'd be sad if I was the last person you heard before you died. If you're in the sticks that far, maybe I hope I hope you strap something to your in in your car somewhere. Um, who knows? I'm just playing. And yeah, the lawn sauce is in Tokyo. Wow. Well, I've never been there. I have an old uh, associate who lives in Japan. She's Japanese. I haven't seen her in ages and ages. Back from my martial art days, she was in our dojo for many years, but I have never been there. So welcome all. This is going to be a fun one today. We have a video and we have um, a, a, an article that is actually a fun article to go through. You've heard me say in the past, so this one's a little bit difficult. This one's challenging, you know, da 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 da. But this one's fun. If, if, if there ever is a, someone who gets excited about articles, scientific articles and calls them fun, I guess I'm guilty of that. So I'm going to try to, um, you know, deliver my excitement, my, my jubilance about this article as I deliver it, because it was, it's just a fun article to go through. And, um, I, I think it'll set the stage for some of our future papers, Western mass. Welcome. Lawn Guy 100. I apologize if I don't, I mean, there's so many new people here today. That's, that's great. I, 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 maybe you're not new. I just hadn't heard, seen your name. I don't remember your name either. So welcome. Welcome everybody. Yesterday we did a, uh, we did two websites. One website said, do this. And another website said, do something different. You know, <laughs> and they both conflicted with each other. And we talked about you can't have both be true. So if you're, if you're, um, in a situation where you're convinced you should apply nitrogen because it'll increase the grass growth and someone else says, don't apply nitrogen because it won't increase the grass growth. I mean, you can't have both of those be true, right? So you have to go find information and find some evidence to support one side or the other. What is, what is the truth, right? Well, that's going to, that's, what's going to happen today on this video. There's, um, a video. Let's see when this was released. 
Oh, 10 days ago. So we're going to talk about a video. In fact, I don't even know if I have it prepped up yet. Let's see if I have it prepped up here. Oh, and Randy's from Bulgaria. I don't know what language that is. Is that Russian or, or <laughs> I'm not sure what that is, but, or is it, I don't know what language you speak in Bulgaria. I apologize. I should know that, but I don't. Uh, I love our international audience. We have one from Canada sometimes pops in here. Randy's almost always in here from Bulgaria. It must be a good time of the day for you. I guess it's what, seven hours ahead or eight hours ahead. So you're probably like mid afternoon, maybe thinking about having dinner at some point. Let's go to the internet. Yeah. See, I haven't got this set up yet. So let me, let me see what I can do to quickly get this set up. Um, we're going to talk about this gentleman's video right here today. The name of the, uh, let's see if I can get this on here. The name of the channel is the lawn lover. The name of the article is four things to do now for a thriving lawn next spring. Now we've talked about, uh, we're talking about thatch moving forward, but this has to go, has to do with what we've been talking about in fall, cool season, fall fertility. And in here he has some four pointers. I'm only going to talk about three of them. Um, the last one is just says keep mowing until it stops growing, which is fine. Uh, the first one, I'll just play it, but the f first one is no, not rocket science, but, uh, we'll play through it and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to walk through it a little bit. So the guy, I think the guy's name is Justin. For those listening, he's standing out on someone's yard. I'm assuming it's his, it's his yard, sunny day, sunglasses on, uh, using a selfie camera stick or something and talking into the microphone as he's talking about. Four things to do now for a thriving lawn next spring. And he's in Indiana. He claim, he says in the uh, video, he's in Northeast Indiana. Here we go. Now, the first thing you're gonna wanna do is try to clean up your leaves and get those off the lawn. Now you can see back here, I did that the other day. Now the key tip here is that you wanna get these leaves off of your lawn. Now there's a debate between mulching and removing. I so. I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but his first tip is remove the leaves. Um, there's a study being conducted right now, and I know I'm going to get this wrong. I apologize. Um, I, I think it's in Minnesota. I could be wrong. Maybe it's in Wisconsin. Um, and I think, I, I'm not going to say the professor's name because I'm going to get it wrong. But they're looking at various um, influences of different quantities of leaves and how to manage those on turf grass. That study, as far as I know, is still being conducted and hasn't been published it'll be published at sometime soon but in general <clears throat> the the until we have greater evidence that what he's saying here is mostly true you know just remove the leaves mulch them in if it's if it's reasonable quantities if it's so much like in my yard where i literally after i've mulched them with a mower there's still a a, a thick layer of cut up leaves to the point where you can barely see the turf grass and I have three inch cut tall fescue, turf type tall fescue. So in those situations where the leaves are enormous, um, it's probably best to remove those because there's so many leaves that it's actually very likely resulting in a reduction in turf growth and quality. But if the leaves are minimal, like as I said, I'm, you guys know from now, I've, I've removed a lot of my trees 
And nowadays, if I can keep it up, if I can mow occasionally and kind of keep the leaves mulched up, it's really not that bad. And so in those cases, just mulch them up. If it's too heavy, remove them. Plain and simple. Now let's go to the next point. Fall. Now the second tip I'd have for you guys is to start lowering your height of cut. So we're at the end of October here. Season's starting to wind down. Watch the weather. I know here for Northeast Indiana, this is our last little stretch of nice weather. So what I'm gonna do coming next week when things start hitting freezing temperatures at night is I'm gonna start lowering this height of cut. Now typically I'll mow between three and three and a half inches. This year I've experimented down to 2.75 inches. I've used the Luba because it mows at that height and I've also done that with my Time Master. The Luba, the Luba is a robotic mower, by the way, if, you, if you're unaware of that. He's showing the robotic mower on his lawn. I don't, I'm not familiar with that mower. Um, I have no reason to doubt that it works fine. So currently I'm maintaining at three and a quarter on the Time Master, um, just trying to maintain these leaves and stuff. But as the weather starts to slow and you get in that last cut or two of the season, I'll drop that down. Now what this is gonna do for you is keep that grass short. And here in the Midwest, you know we get a lot of snowpack usually in the winter. And the shorter grass you have, especially if you have kids out playing in the lawn in the snow, it's gonna keep that grass to where you're not gonna get it matted down and hopefully help out with not getting snow mold and issues coming out of winter into next spring. So he says, lower, he's gonna, you should, he recommends lowering the height of cut to reduce the chance of disease, basically is what he's saying. So this is a claim. And the question is, how do we know it's true or not? Okay, he's just making, he's just making stuff up. You should do this and uh, has no evidence to support it. Um, but how do you know? I mean, well, okay, most, most YouTubers are probably gonna watch this and do nothing. A handful of them are gonna watch it and then go lower their height of cut. Very, very few, in my, from my perspective, my opinion, are actually going to bother to go look up his claim to see whether or not there's any evidence to support it. But I'm in that category. <laughs> so, how, what do we do? When, when I'm, um, looking at recommendations or turf grass management practices within a, within a given state, the first thing I do is I go look at the turf grass publications from the faculty in that state. Okay. There's many other ways to do it. You can go straight to the literature if you want to, but generally if you can go to the, the extension bulletins or publications from the faculties in those state in that state. You can get an idea of what they're recommending. You can kind of understand, okay, this is what the faculty are saying to do in that location. It's going to be more site specific than, you know, a, a paper that was conducted in Connecticut on, on Indiana turf, right? So in Indiana, if they have publications from Purdue about turf grass, how to cut, I would rather rely upon those, you know, results or those papers than the paper conducted in Wisconsin or in Kentucky just because I know that they have site-specific information. So that's what I do. And, this, and, and, I, and I encourage the faculty who, there's especially one faculty um, who will remain nameless at an institution well north of me, who does not follow these recommendations. When you, when you go into somebody else's state and you start providing recommendations and you start spitting out turf grass, you know, management practices and you're from university ABC in some other state, it's probably not wise to do that. 
you probably should actually contact the faculty in that state to see what the most evidence-based information is that they're generating rather than jump in to say South Florida or Lexington and start spitting out information to convince people that you, they should be following your recommendations. And when you don't have any knowledge really of the local dynamics, okay, Mr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so. Okay. Um, Let's go. So what do I do? I go to Purdue. I type, I go to Google and I type in Purdue Turfgrass Science Publications. And when I go there, you will find this website, which Purdue has one of the more easy flowing and identifying sort of websites to, um, see if I can do this again. I'm going to screw this thing up once more, um, to go find information. Okay. So Purdue's turf grass uh, documents are really easily um, categorized. So if you go in here and you go, okay, I'm looking for information on, you know, mowing high to cut on, in, on during the fall for tall fescue in Indiana, you go through here and you say establishing a turf lawn, maintaining a home lawn, weed control, disease control, insect control, and pesticide information. Well, it's not going to be under weeds, disease, insects, and pesticides, and establishing is not going to be there. So you'll go to maintaining a home lawn. So you click on maintaining a home lawn and there's a variety of different publications in here. You can see all produce publications, facts about phosphorus and fertilizing and all sorts of stuff. But what I'm looking for is high to cut relative to the calendar relative to the time of year. So there's a, they're down here. There's a maintenance calendar for Indiana lawns. And if you click on this PDF, actually, maybe just click on this. Now, let me try the PDF. See what happens. Okay. You're going to find a a pdf that pops up with various calendar uh items so march and you're going to say ma the maintenance level of the turf is high you're going to watch for snow mold damage as snow recedes in march if the maintenance level is high if the maintenance level is medium or low you're not even going to bother with that and you're going to go through the different months march april may and has all the various um you know whether you're high maintenance or medium maintenance and so forth and all the various things you should be looking at during the season well, this gentleman is talking about October moving into November, lowering your height of cut. So let's go down to October and look moving into November and see what we find. If I can get this on the screen, we go into November and we have high, medium and low lawns. So all lawn expectations, all uh, homeowners, regardless of your expectation or, or your, your desired turf quality, the very last line in November says continue mowing at two and a half to three and a half inches in capital letters it says do not reduce the mowing height for the last few mowings continue mulching tree leaves into the turf so when you have a youtuber saying lower your height of cut because you're going to reduce diseases or whatever in the spring and you and you don't know what's true Go to the land grain institution website, to the turf grass, you know, faculty's website in that location and look it up. Now, one can argue, well, that's just the faculty saying that. True. They're not showing any evidence either in this publication, but these publications are centered on published evidence. There's, I don't know what Purdue does, but in, in UF and at UK, where I've published many extension publications, it still has to go through a peer review process. It still has to be vetted to ensure the information is supported by evidence as best we can. Okay. So knowing that I'm pretty confident that there's a good reason why 
the Purdue faculty put this in here. Do not reduce the mowing height. And one guy says, reduce the mowing height. So I'm inclined to follow the Purdue turf grass management recommendations before I follow any YouTuber trying to make a few bucks off of a video saying whatever he wants to say because he, he, he doesn't have any more content to spew out. So he's going to come up with something so he can create a new video. Okay. So don't be fooled. What he said could be true. could not be true. Take time to look it up. Look at the Purdue's turf. In this case, Purdue's in Indiana. And it says right here, do not reduce clippings. Okay. So let's go to the next uh, part there. He, he talks about fertility. Okay. We're going to see if I can get this back on the screen here. Here we go. Okay, here we go, guys. The next part is fertilizing your lawn. Now, the third and probably most important step that I would recommend here is now is the prime time to fertilize your cool season lawn. You want to use up what you have. So if you have extra fertilizer in your garage, depending on what it is, um, put it down. Typically, I like to use a starter fertilizer in the fall just to set it up for next spring. But okay. So he's saying use a starter fertilizer in the fall before the freeze. Actually, you know, let me continue because he talks about freeze here in a second. But if you have other stuff laying around, um, basically you're going to want a high nitrogen boost is what most people aim for. It's not a necessity to do that. Um, this year I used up the rest of what I had from Turf Titan um, in relation to Thatch Buster, Lawn Commander, and I used up a little bit of the, the Lawn Striper that I had left. So I put that down um, on the lawn uh, probably a few days ago. Now you can fertilize up until the ground freezes here in Northeast Indiana. Okay, so that's what I wanted to get into. So um, one, we, and again, you know, you can go back and look at all the videos that we've gone over. But we have gone over various phosphorus papers. And in locations where um, phosphorus is already high and or the turf grass is not exhibiting a phosphorus deficiency. You need to get phosphorus out of your program. Okay. If the, if the turf grass is not exhibiting a phosphorus deficiency, get it out of your program. If the top, if the turf grass appears to be maybe showing a phosphorus deficiency, and that has been confirmed with the soil test showing that it's low, then you can consider using phosphorus. But putting down a starter fertilizer in the fall is against every known BMP that I can possibly think of. Unless you're, unless you're establishing a lawn, which you shouldn't be if the ground's freezing. Okay, so when the ground's frozen or about to freeze, this gentleman's argument is, if, it, if I let it continue, what his argument is, put it down before it freezes so it moves into the soil and then it's stored in the soil. Right. Let me just show that so so you I'm not you don't think I'm fibbing to you here. So that'll be typically after those temperatures start to fall. Um, you'll notice the ground temps will take a little bit to freeze up. So put that down um, to where it can dissolve in with rain because most of us have our irrigation off hoses pulled in with the cold temps. But get that stuff down on the ground and you, like I said, you can do it until the ground freezes to make sure it gets into your soil and it's gonna store over the winter. Now you don't wanna do this too soon. We're in a prime time to do this um, because you don't want that grass using up all those nutrients before next spring. Yeah, you don't want the grass to use up the nutrients you applied. You definitely don't want that. You definitely don't want the turf grass to take up the nutrients that you just applied. I mean, come on guys, it's absurd.
So when when you're applying nutrients, the only purpose to, to a turf grass in, in the in the world of turf grass lawns is to enhance the quality beyond some unacceptable limit to get it to the point where it's acceptable. And the only way that's going to happen is if the turf grass takes it up. So if you're putting out nutrients at a time that you're saying, I don't want the turf grass to take it up, then don't apply it. Okay, wait until that's an appropriate time that the grass is actively growing and then apply the nutrients or just slightly before that if you can you know, anticipate or predict you know, the time of year. Let's say you know it's going to start growing every year at whatever. April one, then you can go out a week or so before that if you want to. If it's you know if you know it's going to be actively growing, you're going to start mowing it at that time. But to apply nutrients um, when the turf grass it is not going to take it up, when the ground is frozen, when the grass is no longer growing, it makes no agronomic sense. And the argument is, oh, it'll it'll store it in the in the soil and it'll pop out next next spring or whatever, which the evidence clearly shows that the grass will be greener with those fall applications, right? It will be greener. It won't grow that much during the winter. That's true. But it also shows you can just wait and avoid all the environmental risk and apply it in the early spring. And that's what the uh, Mangiafico and Gallard paper showed. These late season applications, the fall and the winter applications of nitrogen will increase the environmental environmental risk greatly compared to applying those nutrients earlier on when the turf grass has an opportunity to take it up. Okay, so um, let's go back to the Purdue paper, and I'm going to give him a pass on this one, okay? So I'm not, <clears throat> I think this guy's name is Justin. Apologize if that's incorrect. <clears throat> I'm going to give him a pass on this one because of what the Purdue paper says. So we go back to the Purdue paper, and it says, <clears throat> in September, apply one pound of N. Okay. In October, it doesn't say apply any nitrogen. But then in November, it says apply one and a half pounds of N. Uh, can I draw on that? No, I can't draw on this. One and a half pounds of nitrogen. It says use fast-release nitrogen plus uh, such as urea and apply after the final mowing, but while the grass is still green. So that's still in the Purdue Turf Grass extension paper. Sorry if you if it got off the screen there. I apologize. I'm not going to con constantly switch these back and forth. I apologize. Um, it's still in there. So I'll give the guy a pass on that. But remember, we had Dr. Bigelow on. If you can go back and look at the guest uh, playlist and pull up Dr. Bigelow's uh, present or discussion with me. And in there, he stated that here he showed in his doc in his uh, early publications in his career that the November application did have some benefit for sure. But he also stated that he would not recommend that today. Okay. Because of the potential environmental risk associated with those late fall and winter applications. So Justin, um, you know, I'll give you a pass on this one because it is in the Purdue paper and, and, and it's up to Purdue to, when was this even, oh, this had, this had Clark Throssell on it. So this, this document is old. As Zach Riker and Clark Thossel, this 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 document is what at least when was it published? Probably at least fifteen years. I forget when Clark left Purdue. I don't see a date on here, but um, so it's it's an it's an out of date pub. At least that part is out of date, and it probably needs to be updated with Doctor Bigelow's um, comment being you know he probably wouldn't recommend that today. Even though you see a turf response, the risk is uh, the potential risk of environmental impairment is too great. Okay, so when you when you come across these, 
YouTube things. As I mentioned the other day, I don't have any responsibility to refute this this guy's claims because he didn't provide any evidence to support it. But that's only in cases where your your desire is to convince him or to convince somebody else that you know you're right or wrong or whatever the case is. In this case, I'm just simple. I just wanted to show that you know when you're presented this information, take some time to before you just implement it. Take some time to actually go to the university's website, the Turfgrass website, which in the case of Purdue is outstanding. Far better than Kentucky's. <laughs> Even when I was there, I couldn't find my own documents in, on the Kentucky website. Um, but Purdue's is very good, very easy to follow. So when you, when you have two conflicting re recommendations in the same state, one's coming from the university faculty and one's coming from a YouTuber, you know, the chances are pretty good that the, the information coming from the university faculty is more accurate. Okay. So, you know, do a little homework, do your due diligence, and you can avoid some of these um, bad recommendations. And um, just like the, the king, the mice, and the cheese, you follow a recommendation that's poor and then it keeps compounding, keeps compounding. We lower that height of cut at that time of year. Who knows what's going to happen down the road? It could be better, it could be worse, and then you have to do something else to make it better. And do something else to make that better and you're constantly compounding the problems rather than if you just left it alone kept the height of cut as it was and just let the turf go to sleep you probably were better off okay so now let's get to the publication back to thatch now this publication as i mentioned um is is about it's the, the title of this publication is nitrogen and airification influence on putting green thatch in soil it was published in 1979 in um agronomy journal okay so again this is one of our top tier publications the content in this is um, you, have, you should have some good confidence that it's accurate but the reason i like this is because it's it, it it's completely relevant to a lot of nonsense that occurs today, particularly with nitrogen sources. There's a lot of um, salesmen that'll say, oh, you should be using calcium nitrate. Calcium nitrate will increase your roots or calcium nitrate for this or whatever. And um, there's other other folks who will have different takes on, you know, it'll increase your phosphorus or decrease your phosphorus. And they're always trying to spin information to convince you that what they're saying is accurate. When, when in reality, we've known about this stuff for ages and ages. And so this paper talks about thatch, but it also talks about a few other things, um, that I find very intriguing and interesting. So we're going to get in, get into it. Uh, I'm just going to breathe in the introduction real quick and then get to the purpose. Uh, thatch continues to be a turf grass maintenance problem, aggravated most, aggravating most growers, even after years of practical experience and scientific study regarding its cause and control. So really good first sentence. Thatch, an excessive accumulation of plant residue, must be removed from high-quality turfs like putting greens and bowling greens, some golf fairways and tees, and even certain lawns and sports fields. In spite of modern equipment and technology, thatch prevention and removal is laborious and expensive. You could, again, you could write that today. By the way, this was written by G.S. Smith, who was an uh, assistant professor at UF, and he went to Tennessee after this. Um, so he was at UF briefly, like a lot of faculty over the years. They're at UF briefly, and then they move on. <laughs> they have a lot of really good faculty there now. And one of the world's great, well, probably, I mean, I, whatever, he, he would disagree with me, but 
I would say the world's greatest current, currently active turfgrass nematologist is at UF. One of the world's greatest turfgrass pathologists is at UF. Yeah, Dr. Crow and Dr. Harmon are, are fantastic. Dr. Unruh is a is a jack of all trades, and he's extremely um, well respected and, and successful in the areas that he works in, which is a, a variety of different things. So there's a lot of good faculty there now. But if you go down the list of people who have left UF and gone to other other universities, it's it's astounding. <laughs> They're really good, and they end up going somewhere else. But that's okay. Let's get into the material. Oh, the, the objective. The purpose of this study was to evaluate nitrogen fertility and airification frequency on thatching of tiff dwarf Bermuda grass. So we're on a putting green. Specifics and specific objectives included evaluation of ammoniacal and nitrate nitrogen for quality turf production with concomitant thatch decomposition. And number two is to study the thatch soil environment as affected by fertilization, airification, and liming. So they're going to look at the difference between ammonium sulfate and calcium nitrate. So if anybody ever wanted to know what's going to happen in turf grass, the differences between these two, um, you're about to find out when it comes <laughs> to diff dwarf Bermuda grass. I love this stuff because you can always go back and someone says there's a whole company that's does, you know, is a lot of their profit and, you know, market shares on calcium nitrate. And then you can go back and go, this is 1979 or whatever it was. And this shows very clearly that, you know, it's not the best source in most, in many locations. Anywho. So we go to the materials and methods. An established Tiff Dwarf Bermuda grass putting green at the turf grass field laboratories in Gainesville, Florida was used for the study. The soil mix was an Arredondo loamy sand, loamy fine sand. Uh, so this is where I did my master's, by the way. So they, the, the, the Turfgrass Research Center in Gainesville used to be in Northwest Gainesville, up near um, the um, Devil's Mill Harper area of, of Alachua County. And it was, an, it was an old sort of, I don't know, probably, I don't know what it was, five acres. It wasn't very big. Um, or dozens and dozens of people did their work. Okay. And so I'm very, very familiar with this location and the soil. And then in, in 2002 or three or four, it was right at the end of my PhD, they moved everything from the northwest part of Gainesville to like just north of Ocala, south of Gainesville, about 30 minutes or so, 25, 30 minutes. Um, so, and, and they kind of put all the various agricultural research uh, disciplines in, into one under one umbrella, which is far better. We're far better off there now. Or they are far better off there now. But this is where I did my master's work on this, this exact location. Main plots were, oh, I'm not going to go into that. Three, the three irrigation, the three aerification frequencies were one, they did it two times a year. Number two, they did it monthly. So 12 times a year if they, during growing season in, in Gainesville on Tiff Dwarf, it's going to slow down in November, December, and January. I don't know if they continued all year, but they did it monthly during the season. And then number three, they did it bi-weekly, so 26 times a year. So it's 26 times a year versus 12 times a year versus two times a year, okay? Fertilization treatments randomized. Da, da, da. Subplot treatments were ammonium sulfate every two weeks or calcium nitrate every two weeks. Then they also had some other things. Ammonium sulfate um, plus lime applied every two weeks so they're trying to counteract the influence of the reduction in ph from the ammonium sulfate 
and then ammonium sulfate plus lime every two weeks rather than every oh wait apply them every two weeks ammonium sulfate plus oh every two weeks plus top dressing and then calcium nitrate every week and then ammonium sulfate plus lime every week so they had all sorts of combinations of lime and ammonium sulfate and calcium nitrate treatment combinations were repeated six times six replications that's a lot of work but that means that, that basically means the power of this study is substantial. Normally, replications in agriculture and turf grass are we use four replications in the field. Some every now and then we'll use three replications. But nowadays, a minimum of four replication is kind of standard in in field research. Calcium sulfate was applied with calcium nitrate at rates equivalent to the sulfur applied under ammonium sulfate fertilization. And lime, high calcitic limestone, was applied with ammonium sulfate to attempt to balance the calcium supplied under the calcium nitrate fertilization. Thus, calcium and sulfur were reduced as variables in comparing nitrogen treatments. All nitrogen sources were applied at equivalent rates at one pound in. So now, the reason I highlighted that is because I do not encourage people to go out and quote-unquote do their own research unless you're properly trained on how to a prop account for and balance out known variables. And the reason for that is if you go out and you put out something on a turf and you know, you cover it up or you put out two or three treatments and you, and you do that with your own on your own location and you look at it, your conviction is probably going to grow based upon those results because you did it and you saw it and you go, well, you know, I did it and I saw it and this is site specific and I did it. But if you don't know how to control for error or other variables that could influence your data or your results without you knowing, your, your conviction, although it's gonna grow, could be wrong. And I used this on a podcast months ago, whenever it was, a year ago, where I showed a, a magnified, a really pronounced turf grass response to potassium sulfate. And if you did that on your own, you might think I need to apply potassium because I saw this huge green square from applying potassium sulfate. But if you don't balance out the potassium or the sulfate, in that case, I was looking at sulfur. But if you don't balance out the potassium with a non-sulfate form of potassium, in my case, I was using potassium chloride, you, you don't know whether it's coming from the potassium or the sulfate. In my case, because I applied potassium sulfate and potassium chloride at the same rate, and I did not see a response from the potassium, potassium chloride, but I did see a response from the same rate of potassium, potassium sulfate. It was very clear evidence that the response wasn't due to the potassium because I balanced those out. It was due to the sulfur, the sulfate. And in this case, on this paper, that's what they did. They balanced out the sulfur. They balanced out the calcium using other, other sources so that the response wasn't from, um, wasn't from the sulfate, from the ammonium sulfate. It was from either the pH or reduction or ammonium or whatever the case might be. But they balanced out the known variables that they didn't want to measure. Okay, and that's one reason I just don't, I don't encourage people to run out and start throwing stuff out. Because you can become really, really convinced after that point. And you could be wrong because you, didn't, you don't know how to conduct proper research. I'm assuming if you don't know. If you don't know how to conduct proper research, don't conduct research. Because you're going to you know, potentially end up with even a, a stronger opinion that's wrong. You know, let let the let researchers do research and let let, you know, turf managers manage the turf. And if you're so inclined to go down those roads and get a, a master's degree and learn how to do research, more power to you. Then you're then you're qualified and you understand how to do it properly. And I, at that point I would encourage you to do that. 
site-specific uh, trials. But you need to, it needs to be managed or supervised by someone who knows how to do it correctly. Okay, let's continue. Airification was accomplished using a uh, half-inch half hollow tine airifier set to remove um, two-inch deep cores on two-inch centers. Okay, so that's the airification they use. They, they end up changing it during the trial, I think. But um, let's look through here. Top dressing, what the material was a loamy sand similar to the putting green mix, was applied at uh, roughly a third of an inch. Uh, a third of an inch. So you remember back then they didn't have the USGA spec greens. They were just using push-up greens mostly. And in this case, they used an Aerodon to find sand as a push-up part. And so they top dressed with similar soil. <clears throat> Initial thatch samples consisted of five, uh, that's six inch deep cores taken at random from each plot with a two thirds inch diameter core sampler. I'm trying to convert from SI units to English flying on the fly here. So apologize if I get it wrong. Cores were sectioned into portions representing the thatch, organic layer between soil surface and green cover. So that's what they identified as the thatch. So between the soil surface and the clipping, green clippings, that's what they identified as thatch. And the zero to five centimeter soil layer beneath excise, beneath the excise thatch. After a seven month experimental period, core samples were again collected, this time using a what's that an inch and a half uh, inch and a half inch diameter tube thatch thickness depth was measured using a millimeter scale on uncompressed cores collected immediately afterwards now yet last night we talked about the different ways of measuring thatch they did it with a caliper basically it was the measuring a millimeter scale so they measured the depth in with in millimeters they did some other things here too but it's not, that's what they end up going by is the millimeter scales thatch weight was also determined so they measured the weight as we learned last night a measuring or and the differences in thatch based upon weight can be very um variable relative to measuring the thickness of the thatch with a ruler or caliper relative root dry weight was also measured so relative root dry weight we're going to look at that which i find interesting <laughs> we'll get to it the top dressing treatment was selected because a reported increase in thatch decomposition following soil top dressing. So that's the reason they used top dressing as a treatment because it's been reported to have an influence. The other two treatments were used to compare nitrate and ammoniacal nitrogen sources. And because the highest airification frequency should have mixed thatch and soil to ma to the maximum extent. So when they're airifying, their thought was not just the removal, but also the mixing of the soil and uh, the interaction with the soil and the actual thatch itself that we might hasten decay. To correct for mineral material remaining in the organic fraction, a sample of each was ashed for two hours um, and weight calculated to a weight loss on ignition. So they use weight loss on ignition to remove the error, the known error from whatever mineral soil was remaining in the thatch. So in other words, <clears throat> if they did weight or they did roots or they did whatever, you're going to weigh that, but there's going to be some error in that because of the mineral fraction of the soil that you didn't get washed out. They washed it out. Okay. They did their best, but there's still some left. And so in order to account for that error in weight, they ashed the entire sample and subtracted that out. They were able to remove basically the mineral error component by ashing the sample. So that's a very, very good way of doing it. 
So that's the results in discussion. Um, let's, okay, before I get there, let me read through here. Purdue has a great website. I agree, Lush. It does. UMass is uh, so Lush. I'm assuming you use UMass as the uh, go-to land grant in your in your location. I, okay, um, <laughs> might be an unhealthy hobby for me. Could be. The lawn saw says, "What is your opinion on applying this research to a different environment, i.e., Hawaii?" So, very good question. The results of these research is only directly useful for locations that are consistent with the environmental conditions of the research. However, we can't just all refine it down to every single little slice of the, the world where we did the research. It has to be used beyond that. So for example, research conducted in Gainesville would be, I think, analogous or useful for pretty much anything north of Orlando and most, most probably even north of like Lake Placid, you know, probably all the way up into Jacksonville and Southern Georgia and Southern Alabama would be useful for that area. But research conduct, if research is conducted in Fort Lauderdale that shows differences in the results compared to Gainesville, then I would use those, re those data and those research for South Florida rather than research from North Florida. Now, when you're going to take, in this particular case, it's from Gainesville. So if you're going to take the Gainesville data and try to compare it to Hawaii, that's not too far off, okay? I would prefer to see Fort Lauderdale research if you're going to go to Hawaii because we're in a subtropical sub sub climate in South Florida. Uh, it's probably more similar to Hawaii, except we get a lot of rain down there. In Hawaii, you, you don't get as much rain. So you got to be careful when you're comparing results from one location and trying to, to attach it to your location. You do, and it kind of depends on the research. Okay, it's going to kind of depend on, you know, uh, what what they found and how they did it. But if if these results were from Michigan, then I think the difference to me would be too great to to directly relate it to what you might expect to see in in Hawaii. But being in Florida, you 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 could have some confidence with that. Is would would be the way that I look at it. There isn't there's no tiff dwarf in Michigan. Okay. I don't even know. I don't know what's in Hawaii, but you could easily grow Bermuda grass. You, you do have Bermuda grass greens in Hawaii. So that's how I would look at it. I'd be a little careful, a little skeptical, directly saying this is exactly what you should do because this is what this research found, unless it was, you know, very, very close to the environment that you're in. And Gainesville's starting to get a little cold. It's starting to get a little bit more a temperate climate when you get up into Gainesville as opposed to Fort Lauderdale. Okay. So that's, that's my, my take on how you should use the results from, from what was published to your location. Ideally it'd be in a, an environment very close to you in Hawaii. Hopefully the research would be done in Hawaii, um, for results in, in Indiana. Hopefully it's done in Purdue, but at Purdue, but you just got to be a little bit aware of where it was conducted and, and use your, you know, Call, call them, ask them, call the Hawaii. I don't know who's in Hawaii that would deal with this at a, at a university, but ask them, you know, is this relative? Can I follow this? Or what do you recommend? That's, that's probably a better approach. Okay. Results in discussion. After seven months of treatments, thatch thickness averaged 12.6, 10 and 10.3 millimeters for the three verification frequencies of twice yearly, monthly, or biweekly table two. So the 
what he's talking about is this right here, 12.6, 10, and 10.3 for the thatch thickness. So all these are uh, the semi, you know, twice a year. All of these are 12 times a year, and all these are 26 times a year. And it says the average, if you're doing it twice a year, the thatch thickness was 12.6 millimeters, and it dropped by about 20, 20% or so to 10 millimeters if you went from airifying twice a year to airifying every month. But it didn't really drop any further if you airified it twice a month. Okay, and you see those those results there. The value for top dressing plots was 17.3 millimeters, but is but is not included in the average since it was biased by adding soil. Thatch and top dress plots was still intact but slightly buried beneath the added soil. Top dress plots did in no way respond as if they had maximum thatch. Increasing airification from twice yearly to monthly slightly decreased thatch thickness measurements. However, no further decrease occurred as frequency increased to bi-weekly, which is what I just said. Due to variations in replicates and even samples within plots, little statistical difference was detected among treatments. So you have to understand every time we go below the soil, well, thatch isn't technically that, but we deal with roots or anything close to the soil related. The variation is tremendous. You know, the human error and the measurement error and the just there's a lot of error involved so we don't really that's the reason we don't really see differences in roots oftentimes you know we don't see differences in thatch sometimes because there's just so much error and that's what he says here the variation in the replicants and even samples within a given plot there's a tremendous amount of variation so within a given airification frequency no statistical difference among fertility treatments was recorded table two putting green turf thatch appears to be much less uniform than it would be suspected from visual observation. So he's saying because there was so much variation even within a plot, the thatch differences or the thatch itself could be quite variable, even though on the surface it might not seem that way. The difficulty of measuring thatch by thickness alone is one of the problems in thatch control studies. Thatch accumulation increased in thickness under monthly airification as nitrogen was applied weekly. Consistently, more thatch developed under ammonium sulfate than calcium nitrate under monthly and biweekly airification. So this is where a calcium nitrate salesman would say, oh, look, 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 thatch is going to grow when you're using ammonium sulfate compared to ni calcium nitrate. It's going to grow more. Well, hold, hold your horses here. Increasing in rate has been blamed for increased thatch, which we're going to find is the case in some of the other articles we're going to go over. However, when combined with airification, in rate seemed to have little significant effect during the time period of this study. So the rate of nitrogen was likely to have an effect for sure on thatch accumulation, but whenever it's included in a management program that contains airification and these other things, you know, things they did, it didn't seem to have an effect. Thatch thickness in excess of one inch at the end of one growing season was excessive and interfered with mowing. Some turf scalping occurred on all plots except the firmer soil top dress plots. So that's some scalping going on there when it wasn't top dressed. Let's look at this table. So I'm looking at a table. It's entitled Accumulation Accumulated Thatch Measured by Thickness of Tiffdorf Bermuda Grass After One Growing Season and Airification of Fertilizer Treatments. And over here they have they have thatch thickness, and then they have size fraction by weight, and they have root dry weight over here. And yeah, okay. So what you'll see is the top four treatments or the first four treatments are the semi-yearly, two times a year airification, and then the next four are monthly and the next four are bi-weekly and so forth. And you'll see 
that uh, the ammonium sulfate weekly and the calcium nitrate, I'm sorry, ammonium sulfate biweekly and the calcium nitrate biweekly are the first two treatments up here, okay? And you'll see, you go all the way over to the right, and you'll see right here, root dry weight. So I'm not a big root person. I don't particularly think that we should be focusing on roots unless roots are a problem. One, because the variation is tremendous. Two, because no one, I mean, the, 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 the homeowner, I've never had a homeowner or a superintendent or, or a member or a player or a pro, golf pro come up to me and go, hey, my turf grass roots don't look that good. Can you do something about that? That turf grass, you know, granted the top turf is influenced by the roots. I get that. But it's, you know, it's, we're looking at most of, the, of our money is made on above ground tissue not below ground tissue and like i said roots are a way to be deceived oftentimes of people holding up root um, cores and saying oh look at all these roots and grew all these roots meanwhile when we do the study we don't see any differences in this study we did though calcium nitrate bi-weekly resulted in a reduction or actually you should you should look at this ammonium sulfate bi-weekly resulted in an increase a significant increase of root mass it went from 0.89 grams to 1.3 grams. So you're looking at a 30 or 40% increase in root dry weight when ammonium sulfate was used rather than calcium nitrate. So the reason there was more thatch because we, from the ammonium sulfate is because the grass was growing better using ammonium sulfate than calcium nitrate. And they'll state that in a minute where the quality of the turf was superior using ammonium sulfate rather than calcium nitrate. Okay. So... I just think it's interesting that, you know, time after time, here's the next calcium nitrate biweekly 0.86 ammonium sulfate with lime biweekly 1.38. See, you, you see, again, see an increase in roots using ammonium sulfate rather than calcium nitrate. Same thing down here under, uh, biweekly aerification, same thing, 0.85 from calcium nitrate, 1.18 from uh, ammonium sulfate those two aren't statistical they will have the same c there but it, oh, here's the here's the ammonium sulfate um oh that's by weight okay so that's that's right calcium nitrate weekly so if you do calcium nitrate weekly it's 0.92 you do ammonium sulfate weekly it's 1.44 so you're looking at like a 40 percent increase in roots just because you're using like ammonium sulfate rather than calcium nitrate i like these little things like this because it's not really the purpose of the paper wasn't to show like roots or something. It wasn't like it was to show differences in in-sources on thatch, but they show these other things. And I always get a kick out of when I see it. And then you'll watch by the end of the day today, I'll see something on YouTube or on Twitter saying calcium nitrate, you should use calcium nitrate. You know, meanwhile, ammonium sulfate is consistently a superior source of nitrogen. So anyway, uh, thatch thickness in excess of one inch at the end of the growing season. Okay. I already read that. So thatch weight decrease in thatch with increasing aerification is more evident from weight measurements than from thickness data. So in this case, they use weight rather than, uh, than thickness. And they see this, all the differences more frequently, but as we know, the weight is more variable. The thickness, it tends to be the more consistent and precise measurement method as we showed last night on our paper. We, we talked about last night as aerification increased. From semi-yearly to bi-weekly, the quantity of organic matter gr greater than 0.4 millimeters, total, so the total thatch, decreased from 9.9 .9 to 8.5 to 8. All fertility treatments within the twice-yearly aerification treatment 
produced more thatch than these same treatments with higher airification frequencies. Increasing airification from monthly to biweekly did not statistically reduce thatch weight. So basically, the initial change from twice a year to monthly had an influence, but more efficacy did not. Increasing nitrogen rate regardless of source did not statistically increase thatch weight when averaged over airification treatments. That's it on thatch weight. So let's go to root weight. Overall root yields averaged over airification treatments were nearly constant. The values from 1 1.9, 1.19, 1.19, and 1.09 grams for increasing airification frequencies. Severe airification appeared to have little effect on root yield. So there's, that's, that's what they're saying. That's what you found up here on this. So 1.19, 1.19, here's the two 1.9s on it, and 1.09. So they're increasing all the, all the nitrogen fertilization stuff's the same and lime's the same. They're just changing the airification frequencies. And they didn't really see much of an influence when you increase the airification on the root dry weight. So that's a good thing. Even though considerable variation in root yield was recorded within replications and samples within plots, like I just said, this is this is the case on almost every study you'll ever read. There's ridiculous amount of variation in root yield. The superiority, even though that's the case, the superiority of the ammoniacal nitrogen source was obvious. <laughs> See, this is the reason why it's important that we publish our work, you know, because these guys, G, GS, I don't know where GS Smith is. I hope he's still around. But he didn't know I was going to be sitting here, you know, what was it, 44 years after he wrote it, giggling about this stuff. He didn't know that. But but you got to write it. You got to publish it. You got to put it in the, the literature so it's there into perpetuity. It's, it's always going to be there. So goofballs like me can come around and read it on YouTube and get a kick out of it. I just get a kick out of it because everybody's like, not everybody, but there's a lot of just misinformation if you hear the same thing over and over and over even if it's even if you know it's not true there's been studies that have shown that you will eventually begin to be convinced that it is true calcium nitrate's good calcium nitrate's better than ammonium so calcium nitrate's ammonium and you go that's not true I, they, they keep saying it they keep saying it they keep saying you keep hearing it from sales you keep seeing it on sales sheets you keep hearing it over and over and over and over eventually you're going to become convinced it's just human nature okay but he wrote this in 1979. The superiority of ammoniacal nitrogen source was obvious. Remember, they balanced out the sulfate. So it was just from the ammoniacal form of nitrogen. Now, granted, it's going to oxidize in the nitrate pretty quick after it gets to the soil. But the only difference between the calcium nitrate and the, ammoniacal, um, and the ammonium sulfate were the forms of nitrogen because they balanced out the sulfate and they balanced out the calcium. So they're only looking at Ammonium versus nitrate. <laughs> and it shows that it's superior. In every case, this is the study, and this is what I'm quoting. In every case, ammonium sulfate produced greater root yields than calcium nitrate, regardless of the aerification frequency. When nitrate, nitrogen, and ammoniacal nitrogen was averaged over all treatments and compared, it was found that root yield was 50% greater for the ammonium nitrate, or I'm sorry, the ammonium sulfate. It was 50% greater just simply because you chose to use ammonium sulfate rather than calcium nitrate. That's a substantial benefit to you if you can, if you understand that and you're using a nitrate source, calcium nitrate, 
you could potentially just switch sources. Now, I wouldn't, I was talking about this on someone, YouTube or somewhere, about I wouldn't do that if the pH was four or four and a half and that pH is resulting in a reduced turf quality. I wouldn't really be using ammonium sulfate in that case. Um, and we're going to, sh- we're going to show here in a minute that even when you are using ammonium sulfate and you, and you realize the pH might go down, you might apply lime, but in some cases that lime won't have the effect that you think it might. And we're going to show, they're going to show that right here, which is one reason why I love this paper. Soil analysis after one growing season, we're going to get to the soil analysis right now. Soil pH varied from 4.6 to 6.3, depending on the nitrogen source. Values from calcium nitrate were constant for all airification frequencies studied, varying only from 6.2 to 6.3. So there was really no change in pH from calcium nitrate uh, applications. And for weekly or biweekly applications, so it didn't change. Soil pH under ammonium sulfate ranged from 4.6 to 5.1, okay? With significantly lower values occurring under weekly applications of nitrogen. So didn't change the pH with calcium nitrate. It stayed pretty stable, but it did lower, ammonium sulfate did lower the soil pH and it lowered it even more the more you put on. Hot, but So now we know that, oh, let's go out and apply some lime to adjust it and so forth. High calcitic limestone was combined with ammonium sulfate in anticipation of this acidulating effect. However, pH value showed little or no effect from adding lime during the time period of this study. So, and this is on an Arredondo sand. Okay, I'm familiar with this soil. It's, it's not sugar sand per se, but it's pretty close to it. In other words, there's very little buffer capacity of this soil. It's going to change the this pH is more likely to be influenced in this soil as opposed to a more heavy soil like a clay textured soil okay and even in this soil and and the influence of lime in, in, in clay textured soils is going to be less than the influence of lime in sandy soils where you have less of a buffer capacity in sandy soils so the lime should have an effect but in this case high calcitic limestone was combined with ammonium sulfate and it did not show an effect it had little or no effect from adding the lime. In increasing airification, which should have mixed lime with the subthatched soil, did not reduce the acidifying effect of ammonium sulfate during the time of the study. Very low pH did not seem to have a visible detrimental effect on Bermuda grass. In fact, turf quality and growth following airification was better for ammonium sulfate than calcium nitrate. Oh, man. If G.S. Smith was alive today, I'd give him a hug. If any of his family's watching this at any point in the future, your father or grandfather was a great man. <laughs> I love this old stuff, man. Because they just said it how it is. They just straight up said it. You know, turf quality was better using ammonium sulfate than calcium nitrate, even though the pH went down. The pH was 4.6 and 5.1 with ammonium sulfate. Oh, we got to go lime it. We got to go lime it. What are you doing? pH is 4.6. You got to go lime that thing. They did lime it, and it was still 4.6 and 5.1. And the turf was fine. The turf quality was still fine. The, most of the influence on these types of soils where you're in sand, a lower pH, isn't due to like 
aluminum toxicity and iron toxicity. It's more due to like direct hydrogen ion toxicity. And you're not going to see that usually at those pHs. When you get down to clay textured soils and you get down to pHs of four and a half, four, four and a half, aluminum and iron become much more soluble. And in those soils that contain aluminum and iron, you have a much greater uh, probability of seeing a reduction in turf quality as a result of aluminum and iron toxicity. But in this soil, which is a sandy soil, they didn't see that. The turf was better, despite the low pH. Okay, and again, this is one more reason I'm adding to the to the layers of confidence that I have when I say these things. I'm not overly concerned about soil pH unless your turf looks poor or if you you've seen some you have a past uh, pre pre uh, condition that you know the turf has been poor because pH and you're you're working on moving it up and so forth or you're working on moving it down whichever case it is. I'm not overly concerned about that stuff because of stuff like this, because of published literature like this. Okay. Can pH influence it? No, no doubt. Low pH and high pH, no doubt can have an influence on turf grass quality, but I'm not interested in it unless it's having an influence on turf grass quality. Okay. Let's go to extractable magnesium. Extractable magnesium was constant for all fertility and aerification treatments, varying from 35 to 52 kilograms per hectare. There was also no significant difference in P levels. Okay, P range from 57 to 67. Okay, so if you know anything about phosphorus, um, the presence of pho phosphorus is everywhere and it loves to bind with practically everything but particularly with iron and calcium, calcium phosphate, iron phosphate, it likes to bind and become insoluble with everything. The idea was um, even aluminum, aluminum phosphate, what else? I mean, basically, I mean, there's a lot of elements in the soil that will bind phosphate, okay? But in this case, it didn't have any effect on phosphorus. So let's go up and look at that. It was in this right here. So we're, we're looking at soil analysis after one growing season. Oh, um, you can't apply ammonium sulfate because the pH gets low. It's going to, the phosphorus is going to um, settle out of solution. It's going to precipitate out of solution, which is true in, in laboratory settings. It's true. And even in different soils, it can happen. There's no, no doubt. But in this case, here's phosphorus over on the right-hand side. If we can see this, if I can keep it on the screen. And there's no influence on phosphorus at all. Whether you're applying ammonium sulfate, calcium nitrate, you're refining this, you're refining that. All the phosphorus was 62, 57, 62, 62, 59. There's no, all these A's indicate there's no differences in the available or the extractable phosphorus. And ironically enough, in my master's thesis, the phosphorus, I don't, I guess, I don't know what soil extractant they use, probably Malik 1 back then. I don't know if that's, maybe not, because Malik... Yeah, maybe. Malik 3 came out in 84, I think it was. So Malik 1 might have been around at that point. And my Malik 1 numbers were really really close to these numbers, actually. Anyway. Um, it had no effect on magnesium. So all this calcium and all this ammonium and sulfur had no effect on magnesium at all. It did affect calcium because you're applying calcium. Okay, you're applying calcium to this treatment right here, and your calcium goes sky high. Calcium goes sky high, and all you can just point them out. All the calcium treatments go go through the roof. But in, the addition of calcium did not result in a concomitant reduction in phosphorus or magnesium. There was an influence on potassium. 
So potassium levels did show significant differences among treatments. Table 3. Lowest K levels occurred under weekly applications of ammonium sulfate, while highest levels occurred under biweekly calcium nitrate. Values range from 38 to 67 kilograms per hectare. Uh, as ammonium sulfate rate increased, lower soil levels of potassium resulted. So ammonium and potassium, those two ions, are very similar in size. And in fact, those two ions are used, because we know this, those two ions are actually used in soil extractions. Ammonium will be used to remove all the potassium, and then you come back and, you know, you can measure various cations on the soil because they're very similar in size, and they can, they can um, exploit the various exchange sites in a similar fashion. So when you apply or when you apply ammonium sulfate, which is right up here, apply ammonium sulfate, you're going to see sometimes a reduction in potassium, which is this is ammonium sulfate biweekly. We see a reduction in in potassium in the extractant here relative to calcium, which is here. Okay, and you see that for the most part throughout. You'll see here is ammonium sulfate and here is calcium nitrate. You'll see a reduction in potassium a little bit here from the soil extractant. Okay. So that is true. It did not result in an influence on turf grass, which we're going to see in a second. They, they summed that up real nicely here at the end. Um, but it did reduce potassium. So repeated applications of ammonium sulfate on sandy soils like that, if you keep doing over and over and over and over, you might eventually reduce the potassium down to a point where you might see a response to applying potassium. Um, you know, it's possible. But I'm, I'm not a fan of applying anything unless there's a good reason. And in this case... Um, the potassium wasn't low enough to recommend applying potassium. There didn't the turf quality was fine regardless of the reduction of potassium from ammonium sulfate. Uh, let's see, did I? Oh, here soil pH. I had it in red here. Soil pH, potassium, magnesium, and calcium were below considered optimum levels for Florida, where ammonium sulfate was applied, but no visible symptoms of mineral deficiencies were were observed. So they said it right there. The soil pH was lower than we recommend. The potassium, the magnesium, and the calcium levels were all lower than, than we would expect, you know, we would recommend in the soil. But the turf was fine. So that's an example. And there's not, there's not a, much of a conclusion here at all. Um, there's not much of a conclusion. They don't even have a conclusion in this paper. So I'm going to go back to me here. But that's one reason why I uh, encourage some hesitation on the you know, ubiquitous use of soil testing in turf grass science. Because in 79, and this, this could be the case even today. It is the case even today. In 79, they said, hey, we did this ammonium sulfate, reduced pH and reduced potassium, reduced, you know, all these things. Below, they were below levels. They, sometimes they reduced it, sometimes they didn't. But the, the levels were lower on the soil test than the university faculty at the time would recommend. But the turf was fine. So what does that tell you? The soil test was wrong, or the interpretation of the soil test was wrong. And today, that still exists. Interpretations of soil tests are, in most cases, and I say most, I'm using that word very specifically, in most cases are wrong. More than 50%, I would say, are inaccurate. Because we do not have enough confidence in how to interpret those values. Okay, we, we just don't have enough data and enough results to say, yes, it should be this on this turf, on this soil, at this location, at this time of year. It, sh it should be this. And if it's below that, 
you have a really good chance of resulting in a, a reduction in turf grass quality um, that exists but not near as much as you know you can't you can't just say that there are definitely locations where that exists but it doesn't happen in wisconsin in kentucky in florida in, in new mexico in arizona we don't have it all over the place for all these turf grasses and all these soils we, it doesn't exist and on top of that you could be using bray you could be using malik three make one you can use all these which are pretty sound you know you, you, we can come up with values that are you know in the ballpark but homeowners oftentimes don't have that they're using these melon kits that who knows where these values are coming from i i, I just took some out in my own lawn and like they came back and i'm like they came back i took the same sample which i'm happy to show you i took the same soil sample split it into three different or was it four four different samples and sent it off to the same uh lab and it came back with four different fertilizer recommendations. Okay, one was apply a lot of potassium. Another one was apply a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus. And it was the same soil taken from turf grass that is acceptable. <laughs> okay, there's no reason for me to apply any nutrients to that soil at all. The turf grass is perfectly fine. But this uh, mail home lab kit said you should, it gave me four different fertilizers to buy. I mean, one test said buy this fertilizer. The other test said buy a different fertilizer there are four different fertilizers i had to buy based upon whichever uh soil test that was sent in it was all sent it all came from the exact same turf and it came from the same exact soil so that should tell you the variation and the error involved with some of these tests the tests are oftentimes wrong and that's exactly what he stated here in 1979 even though all these levels were below levels we considered to be um acceptable on the soil test the turf grass was fine no visible symptoms of mineral deficiencies were observed. And it says right here, turf quality and growth following airification was better from ammonium sulfate than calcium nitrate. It was still fine, okay, despite its influence on soil nutrient levels. All right, guys. Um, let me read the chat and we'll see where this goes. Are there any pub, uh, public stews? A new name. I haven't seen that. I'm welcome if you haven't been here before. Welcome, public stews. Are there any studies about aeration on normal homeowner lawns? I'm so skeptical that it's that it's necessary. Um, well, yes. I mean, if you want to say on someone's lawn, then I'll have to look that up. But there are airification studies conducted under lawn scenario, lawn settings. And I will say this is that Airification is greatly oversold. Sorry if you're selling airification. And thatch control is greatly undersold. Okay, there's a, remember this was all about thatch. This whole paper was about thatch. And basically what it said was, airification did help thatch if you went from uh, two times a year to six times a year. There was some there was some benefit to reductions in thatch. So there's a little bit of that um, value to that airification if you're looking at controlling thatch. Um, there's a little bit there. There's also, um, let's see, the, the take-home, they didn't have a conclusion, unfortunately. Oh, oh, I highlighted the conclusions in the in the abstract. So let me, just, let me just read this real quick. Surface liming was not effective in retarding acidulation. No changes in thatch weight or nitrogen content could be measured. Thatch accumulation was not adequately controlled by the combination of airification selective nitrogen sources, liming, or soil top dressing. Measuring thatch proved to be difficult, as did correlation thatch with, correlating thatch with turf quality and growth. 
So they're saying, right, it's pretty clear. That was in the that was in the abstract. I'm sorry. They, I highlighted that because they didn't have it in the actual conclude. There was no conclusion really of this paper. It's one one sort of shortcoming of this paper. So it was there was a difference when you went increased the airification, but it wasn't controlled to the extent that um, they says wasn't adequately controlled. It wasn't controlled to the extent that they they, they needed, but it did show a reduction based upon how how often you airified. We're going to go into um, uh, not verticutting, but like dethatching machines. Those machines, based upon the type of machine it is, and whether or not it has loose tines or or solid tines or or, or fixed tines, um, can have a, a great effect on dethatching. Okay, and there's there's companies uh, that do nothing. There's a company in Northwest Florida is called the, the Thatch Man. His name is the Thatch Man. His company, and he dethatches all the time, and he takes off tremendous amounts of tissue. In those cases, where someone's doing it correctly. In my opinion, would be of great value. Um, but you're talking about home lawns. Most home lawn machines are like little little vacuum cleaner looking things, and those got, those things aren't really removing anywhere near the extent of thatch that is probably necessary under extreme conditions of thatch. Uh, also, I've noticed on, in my community, thatch machines are oftentimes used on tall. We have tall fescue lawns here. There's almost no um, Bermuda lawns and no bluegrass lawns in my community and i'll still see thatch machines used occasionally but tall fescue doesn't really have a thatch problem the or printer ryegrass doesn't really have a thatch problem to any great extent they're they're, they're bunch type grasses so they're not like bluegrass or bermuda or zoysia or where you're having a lot of uh lateral uh growth above ground or below ground you're not going to have a lot of thatch if you don't have that so you should be right to be skeptical, public stews, when it says uh, when you say um, you're skeptical that it's it's necessary. It, it's probably not necessary. It's almost never necessary on tall fescue and, and perennial rye, um, but it could be necessary in some home lawn situations, particularly zoysia grass home lawns, uh, potentially bluegrass home lawns in cool season locations. Um, but to do it, you need to have the right machine and the right um, management practice to do it. These little, I mean, it's like, a, I don't know how to explain it. It's like a little something like you could just buy at Walmart or something that goes in there and kind of just pulls things up. That's probably not going to do it. When you, when, when the, when the thatch man shows up in Northwest Florida and dethatches your lawn, he has a trailer that he pulls up with to remove all the tissue that he removes to haul it off. He's really going in. He's getting free plugs here. Not that anybody really is going to, you know, plug my or <laughs> sell off my channel, buy my channel, but but he's removing a tremendous amount of dead tissue. That's what you're looking for, not these little little ticklers of the grass that kind of pull up a little bit of green tissue and a little bit of brown tissue. If you have a thatch problem, you got to pull that out. And we're going to go into those those papers, okay? Um, <clears throat> yeah. So Long Guy 100 says, I agree. You need proof the aeration is good for home lawns or or is needed. In most cases, it's not needed on on tall fescue or perennial ryegrass. I see airification machines in my community on um, tall fescue home lawns. I mean, why are you airifying? I mean, is the is the soil compaction so much that it's reducing your turf grass quality? Unli uh, very unlikely. We'll get into that sometime. Um, yeah. So public stew. So I'll I'll look up. I don't know uh, the the remaining studies. I don't remember how many are in home lawns versus how many are in golf public stews. I don't know. I'll look that up. I mean, I'll, you'll, you'll, we'll get through it. The next several weeks, public stews, maybe even month, 
we're gonna be going over nothing but thatch so you know come back and watch and we'll we'll see which one of these articles eventually get into home lawns um <clears throat> yeah jay goat uh am i okay sharing what test kit was used no i'm not uh because it's a research study and the there's a reason why i need to remain um on the down low with that i i don't, I don't want to publish any information verbally or, or written until i have enough data to actually publish it so i'm doing a soil, soil testing research study and that's one of the treatments so um, unfortunately i'm not i'm not going to share that with you right now but it will be at some point unfortunately it's going to be a little while like years before i'm able to publish that because i'm just starting it <clears throat> spring to uh public says spring 2022 online lab test said i needed a ton of k p was optimal I don't know your situation, public stews, but we're going to go into months, months of potassium at some point. And there are clear evidence. There's clear papers that show the application of potassium can be a benefit. No doubt. No question. But there are many, many, many that show potassium doesn't do anything because there's already enough being supplied from the soil. So potassium, if you want a kind of a, you know, quick, you know, uh, way to maybe enhance your profitability is to look at the amount of potassium you're applying and ask yourself do you actually need it and the chances are pretty good that you probably don't i wouldn't know that unless i have more information for your location but the chances are the chances of you seeing a turf grass response to to applied potassium are very very low extremely low okay um, and then we'll go into that. That's just not my opinion. It is my opinion, <clears throat> but my opinion is based upon the evidence that I know of in the scientific literature. And we're going to go over the literature on potassium. <clears throat> well, well, okay. So Western master, will you, will I cover product infiltration from thatch into soil? So the paper on Monday, I don't know what you mean by product infiltration, but the paper on Monday, will talk about, um, water infiltration the influence of thatch on reducing water movement through the, through the soil profile. So there will be a little bit on that as well. I don't know if that's exactly going to be your, um, your question answered or not, but, um, but yeah, so, so blue, yeah, he said, um, so Western mass says bluegrasses and fine fescues lawns have issues with thatch in Massachusetts. That doesn't surprise me. You know, bluegrasses, fine fescues, you know, they're different than tall fescues. They can definitely have some, some mat, you know, kind of, <laughs> collected underneath them um anyway so okay that's it so public everybody thanks for showing up jesse and and uh, jago and all you guys long guy 100 thanks y'all for showing up that's it for me for this week um i'll be back on monday next week and then tuesday we have a guest author a real guest author not the not the fake one i brought in last night uh, we're gonna have a real guest author on a Tuesday to discuss his thatch paper. And that's the, uh, one of the first papers, not the first, but one of the early papers that looked at biological degradation products on thatch reduction. It's a very simple paper. Um, and we'll, we're going to go over that on Tuesday until then you guys, I hope you have a great day. Uh, treat each other kindly. I appreciate everybody showing up. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next time.